then you have Nephi, who's this contrasting character who just submits. You know, he submits to his father. He, when he hears about his father's dream, he doesn't just say, oh, well, you know, dad's, dad's spiritual. Okay, I, I believe it. You know, he goes to God himself. You know, and, he, and not because he doubts his father, but because he wants to commune as well. He hears about his dad's experience and he says, oh, I want to experience this too. say live because we are not in our usual setup we're in fort worth texas the home of shane robinson the myth the man the legend so uh we said we were going to go start going through the book of mormon uh to fill in for those weeks while we research on some other topics so we're just starting off today in the title page shane what's the book of mormon meant to you in your life well I think the Book of Mormon, you know, it's always, you know, I grew up, I grew up believing it, it to be true and, you know, hearing all the stories of all the, you know, Nephi and the, you know, the plates and all the different things. Um, I think it really isn't until recent years that I've really come to appreciate it to such a high level. I mean, it, it, in the past it was sort of just kind of, kind of grouped in with the other scriptures and, you know, I didn't really think of it any different than I did the Bible or anything else and, but I think, uh, I don't know, I guess the realization that what we have has been given to us, interpreted into English by the power of God, and there's, there's no other scriptures that can claim that. Um, everything else has been through the hands of man, you know, and so um, it's just really, I, I find it really, really special. That, yeah, what you said about English, that's... So it's using words of, you know, early 1800 America to describe, you know, to replace the words from back then as opposed to, you know, men having to sit down and say, now what would this mean today going from all of the different languages, trans translating them, and, and, you know, there's so many different words that you can add for one Hebrew word in the Bible. That's mm -hmm. why you have like 10, how many translations, you know, I probably have five or six I use often um but you, with the book of mormon i think this by the power of the lord the, he gave joseph the correct word i've posted some of those on um you know just on facebook posts but words like mercy um are described in the book of mormon as being encircled about with arms for protection mm -hmm. yep. that's the most correct translation that hebrew scholars would, would say if you were going to translate the word the hebrew word for that today um there's words like pangs of death that you don't find in any Bible translation that now they find out that would have been the most correct word to use mm -hmm. in Hebrew, uh, from Hebrew to English. And of course, the Book of Mormon has that. And there's, there's, there's many others like that. So the fact that it's translated, it gives me a, a feeling of peace when I read it that, um, that I'm reading what's correct and, and not that it's just man's or a group of men deciding how to translate it. It was by the gift and power of God. And it talks about that in the very, the very title page. So we're going to look at the title page today. Yeah, well, I was going to mention, you know, like for example, mercy, to me, having, it paints, that paints a whole new picture of that mm -hmm. word. You know, 
when I think of being merciful in the past, it was always like, well, you know, cut me a break or whatever. But being embraced in the arms of, you know, of love or whatever, that's just, that's more personal. Right. You know, like, like he did it specifically for me, you know, because of love, not because of like, oh, I'm merciful, therefore I'm going to do this action. But rather, I love you, right. therefore I'm going to do this action. You know, and, and, and so like when you're thinking, when you're talking about the translation of these words, it's like, um, it's like if I read, you know, the arms of mercy, I'm assuming that that is the way that it should be translated. So if scholars came by later on and said, well, we think it should be this because of this and this and this, I'm going to say, mm -mm, the Book of Mormon is the standard. Right. And it does, it sets a standard for translation, for, for doctrine, for, you know, it, it sets the baseline. And I think in, in the, today's world where it's so upside down and, you know, I mean, it's the, our culture and the politics and all that, to have something that you can trust is so critical, you know? Yeah, something, at least there's one thing that's concrete in your mind you can always go back to and shut out everything else. That's, well, I, yeah, I, could, I, I don't know if you ever saw the movie Gladiator, but, you know, they would fight and then at the end, the victor and, and the, like, the Caesar, or the, the guy that was in charge would stand up and he'd either put his, his thumb up or down to spare the life of the one that won. And that's kind of like the aspect of mercy. I always thought, like, you should be in trouble, but I'm going to cut you a break. But instead, you get this picture of, I'm going to pull you in and wrap my arms of protection around you. And, mm -hmm. you know, you're safe with me is, is quite a different picture when you yeah. think about the Lord being merciful to us. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the title page of the Book of Mormon was written by the Hand of Mormon, and um, one of the things it says on there that it would come forth, and, and it says it was written and sealed up, hid up unto the Lord, that they might not be destroyed, to come forth by the gift and power of God unto the interpretation thereof. And I love that talking about how the interpretation was, was by the gift and power of God. And we see that with the interpreters that Joseph used. And, and that it was a, a heavenly thing, not just a man using his scholarly knowledge to try to figure things out. Right. Gives us great, uh, a great foundation to really put our trust in as it reveals Jesus to us. And it's interesting here, I just noticed, so it's written by the hand of Mormon, but it was signed by Moroni. So in other words, when Moroni uh, you know, handled the plates or whatever, he didn't go in and put his two cents in. He just said, he left Moroni's words as they Mormon's were. Mormon's words, yeah. Yeah, or Mormon's words, right? Right. Yeah, I didn't really ever draw attention to that. Mm -hmm. So this is important, especially we had a discussion this week. So it's sealed by the hand of Moroni and hid up unto the Lord to come forth in due time by the way of Gentile, the interpretation thereof by the gift of God. So we talk about this this land of America, United States, maybe all of the Americas being um, the promised land. God led people over here from time to time. Um, we talk about lineage a lot. Like Lehi was from the tribe of Manasseh. We'll talk about that a little bit. But um, this is... If this is Joseph's land, the promise given in the scriptures for his lineage, that's Manasseh and Ephraim. Well, a lot of people in the Restoration have been told in patriarchal blessings and in other studies where they think maybe the lost tribes, Ephraim, went north into Europe and those countries that like Joseph Smith and his ancestors and those that come after are from the tribe of Ephraim. Mm -hmm. And almost 
pretty much it seems most people that get their patriarchal blessing, they're told if they're from a tribe, it's Ephraim. So we could say that we have a right to this land being from the tribe of Ephraim. We may have some blood from Ephraim mixed in, but, but what I go to is back to the scriptures. And what does the Book of Mormon say of itself? Well, how is this record going to come forth? It says, by way of Gentile. Mm-hmm. And the interpretation by the gift of God, to that, that says to me that in the Gentile receives this, interprets it. And we're going to read more about Gentiles as we go through. So whether you have some type of is house of Israel bloodline somewhere in your genetics, mm-hmm. the, the way this book comes forth is, is, according to it, by the Gentile. Right. Yeah, I think, um, I think there's, there's, there's two kind of inheritances, you know, and we often just think of the bloodline. People are running their genealogy and, you know, trying to figure out who migrated over and all that, mm-hmm. you know. Um, I have, you know, I have American Indian blood in me and I have, you know, European stuff too. And, but the thing is, to me, it's, it's my spiritual lineage. You know, if, if we're all Ephraim, like all these patriarchal blessings seem to say, then, then the Book of Mormon didn't come to us. It came because the, it says right there it came to the Gentiles by way <laughs> so, of the Gentiles, right? So I would say that that as you know, Anglo-Saxon, you know, white Americans, kind of a thing, we are Gentiles, at least spiritually speaking. Yeah, or according to this, to the prophecies, and why is why this is important? We're going to see because of the instructions given in this book to different people because of the parts that different people play play out in the end times with uh, with with receiving the gospel or rejecting the gospel and and what's probably most important to us establishing Zion or the new Jerusalem when you if you don't read the prophecies as they say and try to figure out who's doing what then I think you get a false sense of well, I'll be frank, a false sense of importance, a false sense of stewardship, a false sense of uh, this is our job, this is what we should be focusing on, and things get out of whack, and they they go sideways. So it's important to realize what our role is compared, you know, coming forth out of this book, and what we should be doing, and who's going to be doing what, so that we don't continually get disappointed, or feel the pressure of doing something that we're not meant to do completely by ourselves, or, you know, with the help of others. What do you think? Oh, I agree. Well, you know, King not only did it come forth to the Gentiles uh, to be taken to the house of Israel, but it was also, there's also lots of messages in there specifically to the Gentiles, you know, kind of what you were alluding to. And that, is, you know, so for me, when God or one of these Book of Mormon prophets is speaking directly to a Gentile and he's saying, here's what's going to happen, here's what you guys need to watch out for, I mean that's counsel directly from God, you know, through the scriptures to us. And if we say, "Oh well, that doesn't apply to me. I'm not a Gentile," then we're missing out on on the message that God has for us. You know, right? Well, there's um, there's the purpose that we've talked about a number of times, but I want to talk about it again. What's the purpose of this record? Why why did God seal it up and hide it up so that it wouldn't be destroyed for all of these years? Why did He command these? These guys of old just take tedious time to hammer records, to hand, hammer their the spiritual things the Lord is telling them into metal to save for the end times, the last days, the latter days. 
it's uh it's got a very specific purpose and it says in verse 7 on the title page to convince the Jew and the Gentile that Jesus is the Christ the eternal God manifesting himself unto all nations yeah that, that's pretty um it's a pretty specific purpose and that's that's the, the the calling of every person that's born is to recognize when Jesus says to you, "Who do you say that I am?" You're you're the you're the Son of God. You're the Eternal Father. You know you're our Creator. You came down. You're, you're the God of everything that came down and walked among us. And when when people recognize that, then their life's never the same. And a true recon, recognition of it with the Holy Spirit bearing witness you know, by fire, on your inner being. When we talk about the baptism of fire, I've never really thought about this, but what really is taking place on the inner man when they're being baptized by the fire and the Holy Ghost? Well, whatever happens with this fire, it, it always says baptized by fire and the Holy Ghost. When the Holy Ghost comes, it bears record of the Father and the Son. And I imagine that the the most important, poignant part of that baptism of fire is having this record within you that you realize that the God of all creation came down and died for us. And when that's burned into your inner man and you realize the love that's manifest there, the magnificence of it, you're never the same. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't, I don't know what people think that, that that is. If you're given the superpower to go forth and be righteous, I think it's a testimony of Jesus dying on the cross that, that never allows you to be the same the way you interact with other people or with Him again. Yeah. Yeah, my wife and I were actually talking about the baptism of fire last night. You know, with, um, some of these uh, discussion posts or groups that, that, that were on uh, that L, sort of LDS-based ones you talk about the you know the, the baptism of fire, and it's kind of for them it's kind of a new revelation as far as something that they didn't really teach in their doctrine, and but I think that there's they're kind of have put a formality around it, you know, much like the actual water baptism, you know, like it's this one-time event that happens, and now you're officially you know baptized, and. And I think that I think that's true in that it happens once, but I think it can happen over and over. I think that the I think that the baptism of fire is basically your spirit is immersed in the Holy Spirit. That God comes in, that fire of the Holy Spirit comes in and completely immerses your Holy Spirit to where you are made a new creature. Um, you know, and I and one example, there's what my wife and I were talking about last night, is look at Ammon. So Ammon, you know, was you know, four sons of Mosiah and, and, and Alma the Younger, they have this experience where they've repented, they've, they collapse, you know, they pass out and appear to be dead for three days, and they're with, they're with God or with Christ. And, I mean, that was a baptism by fire. If anybody had one, that was one. But then you look at later on, so Ammon, he's converted, right? He gives up everything, he changes his whole ways, he, he, he denies you know, taking the throne, and goes out to to share the gospel. I mean, he's definitely converted, and he goes out with power. And he gets to the land of the Lamanites, starts preaching on the Lamanites, and you know that whole deal where they cut the arms off and all that stuff. I mean, obviously the power of God was with him. And so he goes in with the king, and the same kind of event happens, where the spirit washes them so deeply that he passes out. The king he passed out as well, you know. <laughs> and so it happened again to him. You know, and so I, I would say that this baptism of fire is, 
is really anytime the Holy Spirit completely fills your being and washes you and you're, you're spiritually just kind of made new. You know, I don't, I don't think it's a, a one-time superpower kind of thing. I think it's a, it's a lifelong, you know, event that can occur over and over again if you're seeking him. So. Yeah, that's, that, that knowledge of who Jesus is, is becomes more than just in your head. You know, there's, there's other promises here that, that we find within the Book of Mormon. For, for instance, um, if you get the RC, RCE edition, I'll just say page 39, but we're reading in First Nephi 3, LDS 168. It talks about, they have taken away from the gospel of the Lamb, which that, that phrase, gospel of the Lamb, I think is pretty unique to the Book of Mormon, the Lamb. Gospel of the Lamb, many parts which are plain and most precious, and also many covenants of the Lord have they taken away. And all this they have done, that they may pervert the right ways of the Lord, that they might blind the eyes and harden the hearts of the children of men. So who's doing this? It says, after the words go forth by the twelve apostles of the Lamb from the Jews unto the Gentiles, you see the formation of that great and abominable church. So the abominable church, the it's anything that doesn't want Jesus' way to be done, takes away some really plain things out of the Word of God. And the Book of Mormon is here to restore those things. And which, which verse are you reading in there? I first Nephi three. First Nephi three, okay. About one sixty eight ish. But uh, if you flip over a page, the Book of Mormon talks about that in these words shall be written my gospel, saith the Lamb, and my rock, and my salvation. And blessed are they which seek to bring forth my Zion at that day, for they shall have the gift and the power of the Holy Ghost. So this is a important thing right here because this is where the, the Book of Mormon very definitely talks about bringing forth Zion. And that became very important to the early church almost as soon as the Book of Mormon was published. I think the problem was, one of the problems was, that that became um, the only focus. And it seems like instead of having the gift and power of the Holy Ghost, the reverse thing happened. Uh, if you read testimonies of some of the honest men that were involved in those days, it was almost like the spiritual gifts and blessings began to uh, fade away as man began to run with their own idea of what Zion was. Mm -hmm. It's not very long into the Restoration where we start getting revelations to build temples. And when you get to... Uh, you can go and read now in the Joseph Smith papers this, this plan for Zion... 24 temples, three of them just for the first presidency. And, and this is real. This is, this is mapped out. Uh, you can read the, the names of them, and we'll do that at some point. But some of the names take up two, two lines of words, the temple, the blah, 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 the blah, 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 to be inscribed on the front of the. And you get back into these ornate Old Testament-type magnificent buildings and, and and you've got three of them just for the three presidents of the church like each one's going to have their own temple and i tell you i just the spirit does not bear witness to me that this is the the idea of what god had of having a, a holy city to be gathered together yeah. uh, 
Well, we, ta we talked about cities. So you brought up something last night when we were talking about when has a, a righteous city ever been built that you know of? Or when what happens when people gather together in a metropolitan area, a city? It usually becomes the most liberal, non-righteous, you know, far left leaning, mm -hmm. as opposed to the you know, the, the men and women that live in the country and are out with the land and the nature and they're, as people gather together, what, how'd you put it? Men become, um, they get group think, group think and focused, uh, away from God. And what can we do to benefit ourselves mm -hmm. for our own good? Well, you get, yeah, you become self, self-sufficient. You, <laughs> you start, uh, you start, um, thinking in terms of comparing to each other or my house is nicer than your house or you know i have the better tv or consumers whatever, you know. too right you're yeah. not you're not producing things that people need such as food and all that you're just consuming on the backs of others and and mm -hmm. you know things are really easy because you don't have to work for the basic needs of life it's all provided but right. you're not out there you know making your own clothes and raising your own food and mm -hmm. producing your own milk and this it may sound odd but that's that's so for people to gather together in a large location, you really have to be under the, the head of Jesus Christ or nothing's going nothing's gonna to be right. what it needs. Yeah, I think the worst thing that could possibly happen is we preach the gathering or a gathering, but yet don't have these words written in our hearts then you know we become led by men and, mm. and that has happened over and over i mean you you know tower of babel you know babylon i mean you name it, all these major cities of the past that that were just you know sodom and gomorrah i mean you know just this dark evil that comes in when men control things yeah romans so, the rome oh my gosh yeah i mean you could have you could have good intent i mean we could we could say hey you know mike let's start a city you know let's Let's buy this piece of land. Let's invite people in, and we could start it with good intent. But by the time, you know, by the time years and years go by, if the Lord is not the center of every single member of that city's hearts, then it's going to turn into one of those. <laughs> you know, right. That's the pattern. So, so God gives us this. I mean, so we read this in the Book of Mormon: "Blessed are they that shall seek to bring forth my Zion at that day; they shall have the gift and power of the Holy Ghost." Um, Zion is a thing. The New Jerusalem we talked about is a, is a reality, um, but it, I don't know. Within the early church, it's just there's a real bad track record of of moving to a place, trying to establish a group of people, uh, being kicked out, moving again, being kicked out. You know, commanded to build temples, they don't get built. Uh, there's there's something was out of place. Something was out of sorts, and and those things that were prophesied didn't come true most of the time. Mm -hmm. So, well, and I think there's a, there's a flaw in the thinking uh, as far as this idea of temples, you know, when the, you got to look at why we have, why we had temples in the first place, you know, temples were built to house the ark. That's why we had temples. I mean, they didn't, when in the old Testament church, they didn't build temples in every town, you know, around the country. They had one temple in Jerusalem and it housed the ark. That was the purpose. Mm. And it, it created a place for God to dwell. It was the holy of holies, you know, only, you know, surrounded by the veil. And it was, you know, that pr protected it from, you know, people that, you know, people that would try to come in and steal it or whatever. Well, now, so once the, once the ark was no longer needed and now we, the veil was rent in the temple when Christ died, that, that, 
was no longer a thing. I mean, the, the veil was rent. We now have access to God directly because of Christ's sacrifice on the cross. And so, you know, the temple, we are now the temple of the Holy Spirit. You're a temple, I'm a temple. And anybody that loves God is a temple. You know, and so, and because, and so the Holy Spirit would dwell <clears throat> in the Holy of Holies. And that was why it was so important that they kept it sacred, you know, and protected. And so now we have to do the same thing. We have to protect our hearts. You know, our, our, not just our physical body, but our, our spiritual body is a temple where the Spirit resides. And we have to protect it, much like they protected the ancient Isra- Is- you know, Israelite temples. Um, and so this idea that, that we have to build some structure made by man that, you know, that, that Christ is going to return to is it's reverting back to, to Old Testament thinking. And, and it, it's just, there's no doctrine there that, that fits, you know, this, it, this, and I don't know why, I don't know why it is, but we, we as human beings, when we let our natural man take over, we tend to want to have rituals. We tend to want to have things we can touch and feel and sacred artifacts and sacred buildings and holy things, you know, mm. And it, it all comes back to that. It's almost it's a form of idolatry, really. <clears throat> I mean, we we should be able to we should be able to go into our closet, and the the whole cre- universe that God has created be opened up to, to us directly from Him. That's what He wants. He wants that like the mercy, the arms of mercy. He wants that kind of an intimate relationship, and He wanted that in the Old Testament too. He wanted that with Israel. But Israel didn't want to come to him. They didn't want to come up on the mountain. They they sent Moses. They, you go talk to God. They were afraid. You know, he, it, the idea of of having to go before your Creator, all exposed, your all your sins and darkness mm-hmm. exposed, it was a scary thought. And I think I think that's really true today as well. It, it's much easier just to to let the priesthood <clears throat> hand, handle it. You know, let the let every let the leadership do it. You know, they're the pastor. You know, we 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 just show up. We show up. We sit in the you know, we sit in church Wednesday and Sunday, and and now we're just waiting, and, and that's that's that is no different than than Israel, and it's actually worse than Israel because now that Christ has come, you are the temple, and you're, and you're not entering into the holy of holies with with God, and you have that opportunity, and you choose not to. <clears throat> There's an aspect of um, <clears throat> danger too, because because of the attitudes of men towards God and disobedience that holy of holies you realize that entering into the presence of god is dangerous and not not only dangerous but deadly like nobody could walk into the presence of god but for a threat of your life being taken unless you went there by the by the precepts by the instructions that he gave and the only the, the person allowed to go could walk in and be in the presence of god and survive with, without having his life taken you know and there's there's all the things they had to go through, the animal and the sacrifice and, and the different times. But it was this, this danger, realizing that God dwelling with us is dangerous. It's a very, well, you can lose your life coming to God mm-hmm. back then. And you had to have somebody else doing certain things on your behalf so that you weren't killed. Right. But now, because of what Jesus did, because of his death and atonement, we can come before God and not be destroyed because we have sin on us, but because we have been covered by that atonement and by that great act that he did himself, he allows us to come back to him and be in his presence. And we don't, we don't need anything else 
and Jesus did it. As long as we repent and are humble and broken, you know, he will cleanse us with that baptism of fire and the Holy Ghost. He, he God, the Holy Ghost, God, will reside with us, within us. Mm-hmm. And that's how we become one, right? The, that as the Father is in Christ and Christ is in us and we become one, it's that, that's how that oneness comes, by entering into that, that Holy of Holies yourself and being baptized by the fire. If that happens to you and that happens to me and God is, is within you, and God, the Holy Spirit, is within me, then then we're one, you know. But you and I could try all day to like, well, let's let's set aside these things we don't like and, you know, you know, even staying here this weekend. You know, well, I don't like that kind of food, so we can't go there. All right, well, we'll go here. And, and you know, you start thinking of all these differences, and it's like when you take that into the church realm, this branch and this branch or this, this group, how do you become one by any other way other than entering into that holy of holies and just being able to allow God to dwell within you. Right. Well, yeah, I mean, you. I, I think we have to let the Spirit of God eclipse us. You know, because if we, if I come in with my own agenda and you come in with your own agenda, we're going to butt heads. Mm-hmm. You know, there's just no way around it. Even if, even best friends, you know, could you could have, uh, you know, 99% of things in common and just be wonderful friends, but there's going to be those things that you just don't quite mesh on. The only way to truly be one with each other is to only is to be one with God. And I think that's that, I think that's a message that Satan has tricked us with over the years is this talking about you know, being of one heart, one mind, we see it as one with each other, you know, and um, the issue is, is that if we're not one with God, then we'll ne- we can never be truly one with each other. The only way to be one with each other would be for one of us to compromise and give up beliefs, give up, you know, things that we know to be true and, and adjust to the other person. And since we're both, we're both human, it, you're tuning to a, a piano, another piano that's out of tune. You know, there's no way a blind mm-hmm. man can't lead a blind man. <laughs> right. And so because we're flawed, we have to tune ourselves to to God. And I think that's the the big lie. If I'm, you know, we could live a thousand miles apart. And if I'm one with God and you're one with God, then we're one with each other because we've been eclipsed by his Holy Spirit. You mm-hmm. know, it's the same light in me that's in you. So I think to some extent, in, on a very small level, we've seen this... Um, by just, I think, understanding things that I wasn't typically taught traditionally or even different than what I was taught traditionally. And then having, by, by using this platform, having people reach out and hear all the testimonies like, the Lord taught me this, you know, the same thing that I'm hearing. And, and uh, I've been thinking of this, these same concepts. And meeting people like Doug where it's like, you know, you list out five things that, that God has shown him that's kind of not completely what we've understood by our traditions. And, and it's like you see the spirit moving as people learn individually and they come together. And it's 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 a there's no there's no rub there. It's it's I have this understanding. You did. We arrived by it through hopefully the Holy Spirit and not and not some other spirit. Yeah. But that's the, well, that's just a few things from the title page is the purpose of the Book of Mormon. Um, you know, covenants are removed, the plain gospels removed. Uh, this is a beautiful thing right here in, in verse 40 or page 48, as far as the purpose of the Book of Mormon. 
it says they shall, talking about these words, that they shall come to the knowledge of their Redeemer and the very points of his doctrine, that they may know how to come unto him and be saved. And that's in chapter 4. I know you just, you just put out chapter 4 this week for people to listen to and watch on First Nephi chapter 4. But coming to a knowledge of the very points of his doctrine, that they may know how to come unto him and be saved. That's, I think that's, isn't that a key within the book, that it's not about arguing whether it's divine or not, but it's about the doctrine contained therein. Right. And how to come to him and be saved. Well, and the fact that it, it makes the clear distinction that it is through the doctrine that you understand how to come to him. That's the whole, you know, the, the, that's the power behind it. You know, I think sometimes we, we sort of circle our wagons around, you know, our beliefs. Well, we believe in this and, you know, this is important and, you know, and, and, but maybe we don't really understand why. You know, we, we just sort of, you know, it's kind of like I've taken a stance, you know, and, mm-hmm. you know, kind of like, like in politics, you know, you might say, well, I'm a conservative and I voted for this guy. And then this is, you know, this, this abortion is wrong. You know, you take this stance on these things, but in this, when it comes to the gospel, the doctrine is not a political stance. The doctrine is the roadmap to come unto him, you know? And so it, it's not a matter of, of, of my opinion or your opinion. It's a matter of how do we get back to our savior? How do we come to that knowledge to not just not belief but to truly know that he loves us and that Mm. he is in our life he's in the holy of holies inside of me in my temple you know um and i think you know i think that's i think that's really the key that's why we have all these scriptures you know that's why all this exists is to to it's just words until it becomes the the path back you know, once you understand that's the whole goal behind all this, it sort of changes changes the agenda completely, you know? Yeah, which kind of goes to the desire of why do you pick up pick up this book and read it in the first place? What What is your intentions? And it's kind of, I mean, it kind of a good segue into first the first book in Nephi, chapter 1, is what what was the difference between we see a contrast from the very beginning between two older brothers Laman and Lemuel and then you know Sam and Nephi Nephi the main player why why were the older ones as as very quickly you see they're the rebellious the ones that murmur the ones that are stubborn and then you have Nephi who's just very loyal to his father, respects the authority of his father as a prophet and as the head of the family, and he just obeys and obeys God with, with great faith. And it would only be speculation, I think, why that's different. But there's a different... The point is it's very clear, the opposition between these two spirits that are in the older brothers and the younger obedient brothers. Mm-hmm. And... I think that's a good thing at the beginning to to decide what are you willing to do? What are you willing to give up as you pick up this book and begin to move through it? What traditions are you willing to give up? You know, what, what previous ways of interacting with God and in worship and in thinking about everything that's right and what I need to be in my life, what are you willing to give up if God says, like you said, leave leave the keys in your car, leave your house tomorrow you need to leave and follow me. And and that's really what these people were called to do. Yeah. And we see the two different spirits at work there of 100%, you know, okay, I'm trusting in God and 
And the other one is that the whole time are not looking at what God's commanding them to do, but what it's costing them the whole time. Right. Yeah, I, I've often thought, why, why did Mormon and, you know, why did Moroni, why did they arrange these plates in this way? I mean, <clears throat> pro, you know, if you're looking to provide a history of, of this land, of this covenant, of this people, why wouldn't you have had the Jaredites first? You know, and I think I think because the and I think the answer to that, at least this is my belief, is that because this book's spiritual, it's supposed to teach a spiritual lesson. It's supposed to bring us back to the Father. And so, by putting these these men, Lehi and Nephi, putting them at the beginning, it it's laying down a a real simple message. You know, it's a spiritual message. It's not just a history book. You know, and so and the message that I'm hearing that I'm getting from from First Nephi is. Is you've got you've got this sort of in, you've got entitlement versus obedience, you know. So you've got Laman and Lemuel, who they're the oldest, you know. In their culture, the eldest son, the actually the oldest son, had a double portion of the inheritance, mm-hmm. you know. So so that you know Laman, when they took the, that gold to to uh, to Laban to buy those to buy the to buy the brass plates, and that was it was taken from them. He lost double what anybody else did. Wow. Yeah, yeah, I didn't think of that. So I mean, he yeah, you know, he was furious. I mean, he just he just became poor. You know, instantly he was poor. You know, mm-hmm. and so his thought process is as that oldest son is I have I'm the I'm the oldest son. I have the birthright. I have the inheritance. I'm I'm taking over for our father. You know, this is all about me. You guys are you know you're beneath me. You're uh, you're younger than me. You know, you're below me. And and that culture was very much into this pecking order kind of thing. And and so they had this entitlement about them where they was just like. Yeah, we'll just we'll go along with father, but you know, really, we're gonna you know eventually we're gonna get what we want, you know, and I and and so, mm-hmm. and then you have Nephi, who's this contrasting character, who just submits, you know, he submits to his father. He when he hears about his father's dream, he doesn't just say, oh well, you know, dad's dad's spiritual, okay, I, I believe it, you know, he goes to God himself, you know, and he and not because he doubts his father, but because. He wants to commune as well. He hears about his dad's experience and he says, oh, I want to experience this too. So he goes and does the same thing. You know, I mean, he's just, everything about him, if you look at the, if you read the whole story through, he's the only one that didn't, didn't complain or, or murmur. Even, even Sarai and Lehi murmured, you know, as the, as the journey was difficult. You know, Nephi just submitted to God and he, he, had, the, he had the perspective that he needed to realize that he was, that he was nothing. Hmm. He's the younger brother. He's just a man. He's, you know, he's just, and he put himself in God's hands. He submitted to his father. You know, that reference that he always said about, you know, my father dwelt in a tent. You know, I mean, that was a spiritual reference saying, I submitted to the authority of my father. You know, the, my father dwelt in a tent. He's the authority of the home. I submitted to him. Right. And, um, I mean, I, I just, I really have, as I've studied more and more in First in Nephi, I have, I have a deeper respect for Nephi. For the humility that he that he had to have had to do the things that he did, you know, just that trusting God. I mean, I, you know, I was thinking if you got this father who is this, you know, Lehi sort of had this baptism by fire, the spiritual awakening, and he's having these dreams, he's having these experiences, and he's excited, and he's sharing with his family, and he's prophesying, he's putting his life on the line, prophesying to to Israel, to Jerusalem, to repent. As a son, as the youngest son, I'm gonna probably say, "Wow, Dad's amazing." You know, hold him up on a pedestal. And then he comes and he gives this experience and says, the Lord came to me, you know, an angel came to me in a dream and I've read this book and now I know the history of our people and I know our future and we must leave Jerusalem and all this kind of thing. 
I think I probably would have just said, oh, okay, you know, and let's go, <laughs> you know. But yet he didn't do that. Nephi didn't do that. He went and had his own personal testimony of what they were supposed to do. You know, and, and I think that's really a lesson. And I, I think that may be why it was put first in the Book of Mormon. Because mm. the, the lesson is each one of us have to have our own walk with God. Even though we were sur- are surrounded by spiritual giants, you know, if we are, um, you know, especially people that grew up with a, a dad that was a missionary or something like that, no matter how righteous anybody in your family is or your friends or anything else, you have to have your own personal walk with him, your own testimony. He has to come into your holy of holies. You know, and I think, I think that really, if, if we could get anything out of that, out of this book, that would be a, a key message. And I think it would have helped us avoid all the things, all the mistakes that happened in the early church. I mean, you look at, look at the church history and how people just blindly follow Joseph you know, into errors. He, he made errors. And people blindly followed him because, well, he received the Book of Mormon. How could he be wrong? So they mm-hmm. just followed, you know. But we've got this record of Nephi that says, don't just blindly follow. Have a, have a ter- testimony of your own. Yeah. Uh, one of the clearest mistakes to me and the most obvious mistakes to me is from the early church that we should learn from is they did not, they did not hold up the Book of Mormon nor expound on its doctrine nor... I mean, find, and really, I, I ask, you know, the help of our listeners, how many times do you, do you read in church history where, where any of the leaders even talked about what you just said about Nephi and, and, and what does that mean and, you know, submitting to the Lord and, and the, the doctrine of the Book of Mormon was just not upheld. I don't, it, it wasn't studied. It was barely mentioned. Uh, it's all about what happened right after the Book of Mormon came forth and what came next. And, and what the Book of Mormon did for the early church was it gave it credibility, gave Joseph Smith credibility. You know, he translated this book, so now he has credibility to lead us into the Promised Land. Mm-hmm. And that wasn't what was supposed to happen. So we really need to learn from that and go back to what the gift was that came forth from the Gentile and the words contained therein. And what you just said... It was, it was really good because entitlement, those those brothers had much more to lose, right? Because, the, like you said, the oldest brother would receive double the inheritance or they would be the ones to carry on when Lehi died. And so the younger, you could say, well, the younger ones didn't have anything to lose anyway. And, and so they felt like they were losing more, perhaps. Perhaps that caused them to murmur more because mm-hmm. of that entitlement. But, but that's because their desire is for themselves and not for what God was trying to do. They, they, they knew what they were losing. Well, and they, they grew up, they grew up in, in Jerusalem. I mean, they were city, city people. You know, they, they, were, they were what we probably call today liberal. You know, they were, they were involved in the city culture. They were having fun. They were partying. They were, you know, they were wealthy. I mean, they were known. When, they went to, when he went to Laban and said, you know, my father's treasure, you know, we'll, we'll give this to you to buy these places. He's like, oh, the, the treasure of Laban or treasure of Lehi, you know. I mean, he was, they were known. I mean, they were, they were successful. You know, we don't know exactly to what degree or whatever, but he at least knew who he was. Um, you know, also Lehi, you know, he spoke Egyptian and I mean, there's, there's, he's educated. I mean, there's all these different things that, that we have little evidences of. And I, I think we, I think we, we sort of, we don't apply it to ourselves, what the, the magnitude of what happened here. I mean, imagine, imagine if, you're, 
your you know, your your dad says, "Okay, everybody, we're gonna we're just gonna leave." You know, the Lord's told me to leave, and we're gonna leave. We're gonna go to Mexico. You know, we're gonna walk away. I'm gonna quit. I'm quitting my job. We're leaving the co- the keys in the car, and we're you know we're leaving the we're leaving the house unlocked, and you know gather up what you can carry, and you know let's go. Don't bring any gold or anything. Just bring food and mm-hmm. you know, what we need to survive, and we're gonna go, and we're gonna go live in Mexico. You know, and and you're you're in a wealthy family in Jerusalem. You're in this wealthy family, and you're like, what? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I just to walk away from it all with, and really not even know where you're going. I mean, he, they didn't, he didn't even say we're going to Mexico. He said we're just going to go somewhere. God's prepared a place, and mm-hmm. let's go. You know, that to have that kind of faith that Nephi had to to, to submit, but also, you know, those brothers. I mean, you can see how mad they were. It even says that they. They were like unto the people in Jerusalem that wanted to kill Lehi. I mean, they wanted to murder their own father because they were so furious that he was taking them away from what they loved and what they enjoyed. You know, and it's interesting the cultural aspect of it because I think in some ways today they'd be like, "Go ahead and go. I'm staying here." <laughs> you know, but I guess there was the culture was different, and they just they went because he's dad. Right? Know? Didn't didn't seem to be an option to. Go ahead, you do what you do. I'm I'm going to stay here. Right. Well, yeah. Most of what they had probably was tied into him, so they probably without him they probably had nothing. Resources. Yeah, but, or, but he left it all behind, right. so they could have stayed yeah. stayed behind with the resources. True. <laughs> but, well, let's move into chapter one, and and um, so Bob Bobbitt was on a while ago, and he has a website about. There's almost two thousand pages of notes through the Book of Mormon with study guides and things. I just captured some information from him. I'll put a link in. But this is the concept that there are, there were other prophets who were contemporary to Lehi. So we know Lehi was told to go and prophesy the destruction of Jerusalem. The Lord told him to do that. But this uh, this goes into that tie-in of not just being one prophet head over everything, but that many prophets. So Jeremiah was from 627 to 582 BC, and he remained in Jerusalem throughout three Babylonian, it says, deportations. At the end of his life, he was coerced to move to Egypt. So there was Jeremiah from the Old Testament. Daniel, Daniel was deported into Babylonian exile in 605 BC. And if you read Daniel 1, that those events took place about that time. You have Ezekiel. He was deported into Babylonian exile in 597 B.C. And he was a faithful priest of God in Jerusalem. He did not receive the revelations in the book of Ezekiel until he was in exile in Babylon. So, so Ezekiel was written while, while he had been deported. So all of so so there's three major prophets. So why why God called Lehi, and why did those prophets not not pick up and move to the to the new world to be saved? And we don't know, but but God did call another prophet and told Lehi to prophesy. So the Book of Mormon says Lehi left Jerusalem before those deportations, six hundred years before the birth of Christ, and this is while Jeremiah was still an active prophet in Jerusalem. He remained there long after Lehi left, five years after Daniel had been deported, and three years before the priest Ezekiel was deported. That's just a little background. So we wonder why 
you know, why many prophets. Here's the other thought is that we talk about tribes and lineage who blessings through Joseph, the coat of many colors, Joseph down at Lehi was from the tribe of Manasseh, but he was living in Jerusalem, which would have been Judah. And Bob mentions on his website here, it says that, well, in Alma 8.3, RLDS says that Lehi was a descendant of Joseph of Egypt and his son Manasseh. So Lehi came through Joseph and Manasseh. But it says by 722 BC, so you know, by 120 years before the time Lehi left Jerusalem, the northern ten tribes of Israel, including Manasseh, had been scattered already across the eastern half of Europe or the Assyrian Empire. So all that was left in the southern nation of Judah was the, all that was left was the southern nation of Judah. The top tribes were dispersed and scattered. Mm-hmm. So how did how did Lehi? Because it says in the beginning of the Book of Mormon, having dwelt in Jerusalem all my days. Well, Ezra 1.5 seems to indicate that this tiny southern nation was primarily comprised of three tribes, Judah, Benjamin, and Lehi. So southern southern one was Judah, Benjamin, and Lehi. So if Lehi was living there and was descended of the tribe of Manasseh, how did he get there? And he says Second Chronicles gives us a little clue. So in Second Chronicles 15.9, it says, King Asa of Judah was a righteous man, and at a time when the northern nation of Israel seemed to be ruled ruled by wicked rulers, members of three tribes of northern Israel migrated down to Judah to live under King Asa's leadership. So he's like giving them refuge, you know, come down here and be with us. And the members of the tribes were Ephraim, Manasseh, and Simeon. Hmm. So Lehi could have easily descended from one of those families that migrated down to be under a a more kind, gentle ruler in, in Judah. That's neat because... It all lines up then, right? Because you can say, well, why was he in Judah? He was from a different tribe. and It wasn't his place to be there. Right. So that's kind of cool just to to start off uh, that this story lines up. I, I mean, I don't, you'd really have to be keen to understand all of that, but it just picks right up here, you know, <laughs> Lehi having been born in the house of, or in, in Israel and, and all of his days, the story takes off, so... Right. Um, we can probably pick up there next time if you think we we spent quite a bit of time and on things I think were good yeah. beginning. Yeah. I want to. Um, I do want to say this is one of my favorite things that when you start reading the Book of Mormon, you only have to turn a page or two, and you only have to go twenty verses in to come across this scripture. And he testified that the things which he saw and heard, and also the things which he read in the book, manifested plainly of the coming of a Messiah, and also the redemption of the world. And that's Lehi at the beginning, having his experience. Mm-hmm. 20 verses into the end of the book, in this Old Testament book, long before Jesus comes, we read about the Messiah who's going to redeem the world. Right. And he's going to be found throughout the rest of the book. And that's amazing, even Old Testament times, right? Right. Well, yeah, I mean, you get it, you get it right on the title page, and you get it right within the first 20 verses of, of the book. I mean, this is truly a, a, a book about Jesus. Mm-hmm. Anything else to add? Um, well, when you were talking about the title page uh, in verse 7, you mentioned about you know, that the purpose is to convince the Jew and the Gentile that Jesus is the Christ, the eternal God. 
The verse before it also is, is part of the purpose, uh, and that's that they may know the, the covenants of the Lord and that they are not cast off forever. And I think there's some real loving, kind of merciful you know, message in there that, that the house of Israel, these, these lost tribes, they're not cast off. They're not, they're not lost to God. You know, and I think that is probably our, our, the, a big part of the message that we need to take to the Lamanites is that they're not just lost. They're, mm-hmm. That they have not been forgotten. You know, that they were actually preserved. Um, that they kept like, he kept them from being taken into into Babylon and you know into pe- captivity and I think that you know a native uh, for example a Native American would be truly surprised to to know all of this history you know to to really find it out in in its pureness you know being confirmed by this Holy Spirit and I think that's I think that's what we've been missing you know that's what Joseph and and team didn't do back then was to really get that message to the house of Israel that they're not cast off. Um, we focused on a, a Gentile building a, building up a Gentile church instead of getting the message of this mm-hmm. book to the people. Um, so the, those two things really stand out, and I just thought that should be mentioned. I'm glad you brought that up, because one other thing on that title page where it says convincing the Jew and the Gentile, um, well, we say, well... We would say like the Gentile church, especially in the 1830s, believed in Jesus. You know, they had the Bible and they brought the Bible over here. But I think in Second Nephi 11, around 78, they reference this again. And he says, And as I spake concerning the convincing of the Jews that Jesus is the very Christ, it must needs be that the Gentiles be convinced also that Jesus is the Christ, the eternal God. And he manifests himself unto all they that believe in him by the power of the Holy Ghost. So it's not just the Gentiles believing in that Jesus is, but believing in his nature. Mm-hmm. And we still have yet to receive this. Well, we still argue about it in the Restoration Church, the Gentile church that brought forth the Book of Mormon, that the Gentiles have to be convinced that Jesus is the Christ, the eternal God. Mm-hmm. And that this, this manifesting himself unto us by the power of the Holy Ghost is that what you said about that firsthand testimony in that baptism of fire, we have to realize that that's what we need. We have to be convinced of that. And, and this book testifies to that. But, um, but I think we live far below that. You mm-hmm. say, oh, we're, we're Christians, but, but do you, what, what do you believe about the nature of Jesus that came down among us? Right, well, how, we... Yeah, because we've we've been so focused on the, an organization, we think that as long as we've been got membership into that organization, then we're part of it. You know, and we've we've taken the spiritual aspect out of it. We've we've just, you know, we've we've signed our names on the dotted line, and therefore we're we're you know part owner of the of the business. And it's really not that's really not the way it is. It's you know it's my walk with God, <clears throat> your walk with God, and letting Him come into that holy of holies in our temple inside of us. Well, one more thing I think to solidify as we go forth into the Book of Mormon on who the Gentiles are. First Nephi 7, it says that the Lord God will raise up a mighty nation among the Gentiles, yea, even upon the face of this land, and by them our seed will be scattered. What other group of people would that be other than the United States? Right. So in, as far as prophecy goes, we are the mighty Gentile nation. Mm-hmm. 
and we scattered their seed. And it says, The Lord will proceed to do a marvelous work among the Gentiles, which will be of great worth unto our seed. Bringing forth of the Book of Mormon, right? The, the covenants. Yep. And so, we'll see the, the theme that goes through this book, the prophecies, and keeping those things straight in our mind and not substituting our work from other people's work and how we work together is important, I think, in giving us hope realizing who we'll be working with, when, all of those things, mm -hmm. so that we don't lose hope and that our hope's placed in the correct thing. Yeah. Well, and I think that's, that's probably one of Satan's biggest tricks is to get your, your eye off the goal, you know, to get you distracted. You know, and I think, I think you know, it happens in our, in our personal life with, like, entertainment and, you know, all the you know, our jobs and and all the things sports all those things that we, that we engage in are act as a distraction from taking away time we could be in the word or fellowshipping or whatever but it's happened in the church as well we get the if we can get the body of the if satan can get the body of the church focused on something that isn't even attainable right at this moment you know something that's maybe, you know maybe put the cart before the horse kind of a mm -hmm. thing you know, like you know we were told to take the message of the book of mormon to the house of israel we were told to you know, to study the Book of Mormon, to know what it says, you know, to set it up as a standard, to, to, to build up that relationship, that personal relationship with God. But instead we focused on gathering and building cities and all these kind of things and not on us individually, mm. our spiritual life. And, and I, think, I think that that, that has to, our focus has got to get back on the central goal, central theme of what Jesus was trying to tell us when he came to both continents you know that he we must come unto him and if if we're not if we don't come unto him then gathering and zion and all these kind of things that we we've set up as goals don't mean anything if we haven't not come to, to him yeah we'll, we just have to settle that we'll, we'll be unsuccessful yeah change in the inner man born of the spirit yeah well this this tells us to point to the very doctor and how to do that so i'm glad that we're discussing that so until next time be good to each other just walking each other home. I'm happy to spend time in Shane's home. Experience.